Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to dominate your career, then you are in the right place. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker. And Monica Marquez, ex-Googler, diversity expert, and senior corporate leader. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Monica, your host for today's episode. Did you know that white women are one of the most influential demographics in America? They are the largest voting bloc with purchasing power that exceeds any other demographic. And when they unify to demand change, they are a force to be reckoned with. So many sit idly on the sidelines, raising their hands to do, learn, and engage in ways that could make a difference. Why? Well, in this episode, Jenna Arnold, the national organizer for the historic 2017 Women's March and author of Raising Our Hands, shares the research and insights she gathered over the past few years crisscrossing the U.S. in conversations with white women about their identity and role in the country. Jenna peels back the history that's been kept out of textbooks and the cultural norms that are holding them back so white women can finally start really listening to marginalized voices and doing their part to promote progress. Raising Our Hands is Jenna's call to action for white women to stop avoiding the hard conversations, start accepting responsibility, and find a place on the new front lines. Jenna Arnold is listed as one of Oprah's 100 awakened leaders who are using their voices and talent to elevate humanity because she doesn't have much patience for the status quo. She has been called a disruptor in every industry in which she has dabbled from elementary school classrooms to the halls of the United Nations, MTV, and the White House. For her recent work as one of the organizers of Women's March, Jenna was recognized with a Glamour Women of the Year Award. She has been recognized for shaking up longstanding assumptions and being one of the biggest ideas in social change, and named one of Inc. Magazine's 35 Under 35 list. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com, where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources referenced in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Jenna. Hi, Jenna. Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on our show. I know that our listeners are super excited to hear from you and all of the happenings since, um, you know, you've been really busy since the, you kind of helped organize the women's launch and everything you've done since then. And you have a new book coming out. So I'm not going to waste any more time. I want to just dive right into um, you telling us your story, what you've been doing, how has your journey been since, you know, all of the um, amazing work you did with the, you know, the Women's March and um, what's going on during the pandemic? Well, thanks for having me, Monica. I'm really happy to be here. So uh, where should I start? I mean, um, I think I'd probably answer that question very differently eight weeks ago than I'm answering it today. Um, and yeah, we, we are looking at a very different world in a way that I think is can be very exciting if we approach it um, with the level of humility and grace that I think we all um, mm-hmm. want to show up to our lives and our professions with, um, and certainly in ways that we want to be civic participants um, and make sure that as we come through this, um, we take advantage of the opportunity to, to design a different tomorrow and a different system that benefits Mm -hmm. more people. Um, uh, So yeah, so there's a lot going on. That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about um, 
you know, in this in this current pandemic, we're having to do quite a bit of pivoting. Um, now, I know your book. You have a brand new book coming out um, yeah. that is actually exciting um, around the research that you've been doing um, these past couple of years, and it's called Raising Our Hands. And you had hoped to launch it, I think, you know, pre-pandemic or probably around now, but you're now aiming for June. Tell us a little bit about your book and uh, the really interesting research that you've been conducting around um, the state of American women. Um, Would really love to hear some of those insights. Yeah, so I uh, have been traveling in the country for the past three years, Mm -hmm. having closed-door conversations with American women with a specific focus on the white American female demographic, Mm -hmm. asking existential questions related to power, privilege, proximity, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of discussions around what stereotypes about you are true, what are your biggest regrets, how has America showed up for you. My favorite one is what are you willing to fight for besides your kids? Um, And we've really been putting our identity and our capacity under the magnifying glasses in magnifying glass in ways that are particularly surprising to the people I've been doing the research with. And what I, the reason I set off on this journey is, as you mentioned, I was one of the organizers of the Women's March in 2017. Mm -hmm. And when I stood on stage in Washington, D.C. and looked out at a crowd of millions of women, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of people wearing pink hats. I know you can all visualize it. And it also (laughs) dawned on me that there were a tremendous amount, at least from, again, just a a scan of the crowd, Mm -hmm. it looked like it was mostly white women wearing Mm -hmm. those pink hats. Right. And I sort of spent a little bit of time, a couple of weeks with some behavioral scientists diving into the data around who was showing up, not just in Washington, D.C., but in any one of the 667 marches worldwide. Mm -hmm. Um, what are those demographics? We didn't have the data catchment systems that I obviously would have loved to have in place. <laughs> right. Tell me what you care more about, climate change or repro rights, just so we can put you to work on those things. Um, right. And it was a very like haphazard way of, of bringing the world together, but it happened exactly as it was meant to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so it, I had a really hard time reconciling with how women were showing up on this one day on the largest protest in human history, mm-hmm. but then also what so many other women from this very specific demographic did on November 8th, 2016. Mm-hmm. And the reason I had a little bit of a front row seat to that is my mom is one of nine and uh, I have a huge family mm-hmm. about 60, 70 deep and we're all very close. And, um, there were many of my family members who didn't vote along the same political lines in 2016. Right. And so I spent a lot of time reconciling this idea of like, well, so many of my aunts who I love, who are Mm -hmm. responsible for raising me, who care about the world, who are, you know, well, quote, I'm using quotes here, quote, well-intended women also then pulled the lever for a candidate that didn't necessarily align with um, their best interests in, um, in, you know, decreasing the void in the gender pay, pay gap or making mm-hmm. sure that their voices were as um, lifted as they could be or any number of ways that felt like a vote for the current 45th president right. felt hypocritical to not only what was happening with the, the, the women in my intimate family who I love deeply and then the millions of women that I saw on the street marching Mm-hmm. And so I was like, something's just not adding up. Like, right. there's, it's fascinating. Yes, <laughs> reconcile the um, compassion, intention, and love mm-hmm. 
and what I'm seeing in front of me and then also actions in the voting booth and with credit cards and things like that. So I set out to unpack all of that. And what mm-hmm. I found was um, a country of, um, and, and I'm making, you know, uh, large generalizations here, mm-hmm. but a country of brilliant, um, shrewd, creative, fierce women mm-hmm. who are often sitting on the sidelines because of insecurity, yes. a belief in self-worth, um, uh, an inability to, to see their role in the comings and goings, and most importantly, in the solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I coined a lot of these phrases in the book, Raising Our Hand, Mm-hmm. around performance chores, um, performance myths, cognitive mm. acrobatics, which came from um, a professor out at Stanford, um, Dr. Fielding Yang, uh, 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 sorry, Dr. Priya Field Singh, mm-hmm. who um, had came up with this concept that women do a really good job of doing backflips and cartwheels to convince themselves that um, the behavior of the men in their lives is just their unique husband, son, mm-hmm. father-in-law, boss, um, or that I'll just, you know, carry the additional emotional burden, labor, or the laboring in general of running households or raising children, mm-hmm. um, that's how it's always been. So I found of uh, I found an extraordinarily powerful demographic. Mm-hmm. I would argue, possibly the mo- one of the most powerful in the world. Right. Uh, we white women are the largest voting block in the United States. Uh, they control forty two percent of of the electorate. It will stay that way through twenty sixty. And so in twenty sixty, white women will still control fifty six of the hundred set uh, fifty six of the of hundred of the 100 Senate seats. Mm-hmm. Um, they control $8 trillion of the $12 trillion economy. They decide the toothpaste, the religion, the cars, the universities, whatever it might be, the co- just the, 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 the life in general. And yet they're often bowing away. They don't understand that there's that level of power. Mm. And so the question that I pose in the book is, if you knew you had this power, and as we're seeing more clearly today than ever before in human history, this level of inequity that mm-hmm. again, back to my well-intended loved ones who still pulled the lever uh, differently than I did in 2016, they're, they're not comfortable with the level of inequity that's in the world, but they mm-hmm. also don't know that they have the power to do something about it. And sometimes mm-hmm. that power is an allyship, as an accomplice, sometimes that power is... Um, shutting up. Sometimes that power is screaming super out loud. Um, Whatever it is, is there's this huge layer of um, insecurity and ego that is getting in the way of this demographic showing up for all. That is fascinating. And I admire your tenacity in wanting to unpack it um, because I think there are many of us who were curious. I mean, like you, I have family members, you know, I originally I'm from Texas. I went to New York City. I was in New York City the better part of, you know, two decades and then moved to LA. So I've always been in very progressive, um, you know, uh, areas. So my my mindset and, you know, just my views certainly changed because of the, um, just the frame of reference that I was able to experience as, you know, I went into the corporate world and met lots of different uh, people and, and whatnot. Um, but they too 
voted differently than I did and was curious. So I admire the fact that you went after that and said, okay, I need to understand this and, and understand why, um, you know, things are the way they are. So I'm curious, you mentioned that they have lots of insecurities um, or maybe self-limiting beliefs um, in really pursuing kind of maybe what they want or they desire. Did you unpack or understand what is driving those self-limiting beliefs? Is it, you know, just, um, you know, just more social upbringing or just is it is what it is or, you know, what, what is the root of that? My hypothesis, which I lay out in chapter two is this, I call the great American pretending, Mm -hmm. which is this blueprint that we lay out for both women and men Mm -hmm. to very methodically follow throughout their lives. And it's almost like a game where uh, you have to advance and get to the next level. Mm -hmm. And for, for women, and again, my life doesn't necessarily look like this blueprint and some of your listeners um, might not have had this experience, but there might be some familiar characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, so in grade school, you are sporty and um, cute enough to have lots of friends. Middle and high school, you're popular enough to be able to choose whatever table you get to sit at mm-hmm. um, in the cafeteria. You go off to undergrad and your family back at home are asking questions related to whether or not you have a boyfriend um, mm-hmm. before they're asking you about your passion of study. Um, again, those questions around finding a partner lead often um, the work that one should really be doing on themselves and their Mm -hmm. identity and their role in the world and their role with themselves and all the complicated human things that happen in, Mm -hmm. in the early twenties. Um, graduate, great, go move to a major city. That's awesome and cute, but you still, the the big first huge task that you have to tackle is finding a partner Mm -hmm. to build up your life with. Assuming you found him, Mm -hmm. you're then asked questions quite quickly, like when are you going to get engaged? Assuming you get that ring on your finger, you then spend the next six months or a year and a half Mm -hmm. talking about the wedding, DJ band, you know, strapless or mermaid cut, whatever it might Mm -hmm. be. And then before you're done um, unwrapping the last wedding present, you're then asked what? <laughs> what Family, right. When are you going to have kids? Right. And then three months before you have your first kid, and that's assuming you can get pregnant, mm-hmm. assuming you can conceive and carry a healthy pregnancy, um, three months before you have your first kid, you are asked the most privileged question <laughs> of any demographic <laughs> on the planet, which mm-hmm. is what? So three months before you have a child. Your first kid, you're asked the most privileged, you've climbed the Mount Everest summit, you've checked off all of the, the, the to-dos on the blueprint, and you're asked this one final question, which is sort of, I envision of like, you made it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm it curious. is? Yeah, I, I want to know what it is. Are you going to continue to work or stay at home? That's well, I was thinking that, but in my mind, I'm like, when are you going to go back to work? But I'm like, mm, that's not what they would be asking me. <laughs> so I, I'm not interested in the mommy wars. Like, mm-hmm. let's in the 90s where they belong. But the mm-hmm. fact that, like, that becomes the summit, mm-hmm. that becomes the summit for the blueprint that we send so many women through, checking off all these different boxes. And I remember at one point with one of my best friends, she was like, ah, I just feel like it's like, I have to get the boyfriend. And then once I get the boyfriend, I have to get engaged. And I always feel like the next level of happiness and clarity is going to be at the next step. 
Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens with men, right? There's a very clear pathway that men have to, you know, right. there's a lane more or less that right. men have to follow mm-hmm. too. And so I think one of the things that I took away from all of the research that I did for the book is that so many women are still stuck in that blueprint of mm-hmm. like, if I worked, I have guilt. If I don't work, I have guilt, right? Again, mm-hmm. I don't care what option you choose. You're just still handed a bucket of guilt to pour over your head for the next 30, 40 years. Right. And, and because there hasn't been, and it's happened over the past couple of decades, this massive push to be like, well, you can actually do both. Mm-hmm. You can raise children and have a healthy career and have a healthy at home life. You can also not have children and mm-hmm. not have a career. You can ha- not have children and have a career. This idea that like there has to be certain milestones that we all have to check off. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we've pushed ourselves further as just women in general mm-hmm. to say, Like what's all encompassing? What does this all look like? So not only are we not opening up space for there to be new types of reality for the way that we live professionally, personally, Mm -hmm. um, in family units, in as community members, but we also haven't then re-examined what the deliverable has to look like in each of those roles. Mm. So one of the things I heard from one of the listening circle participants, which is where I did all my research for the book, Raising Our Hands, Mm -hmm. was she said, you know, our grandmothers fought so hard for us to have the right to vote and the right to work or to stay at home and to do all those things. But what she didn't do for us is she didn't lower the bar of what that had to look like. So Mm. you could work, (laughs) but your house, your lands, your yard still had to be perfectly right. Landscape. Mm-hmm. Your Thanksgiving dinner still had to be beautifully. Your body still has to be fit in this one very specific shape. Your career has to look very much like this still. Mm-hmm. So this idea that like they just added a bunch of additional things for us on our to-do list mm-hmm. and they kept the bar almost impossibly high. So what I found was this level of like, I know I'm qualified to do almost anything, mm-hmm. right? And I think, you know, that's my stance is like, I've been in so many different professional lanes throughout my career mm-hmm. and they all look the same. It's like the same egos with the same territorial, you know, battles mm-hmm. with people. Nothing's ever been um, so jarring that I'm like, wow, this has never looked like, you know, I've been in finance. I've been in production. I've worked mm-hmm. in the nonprofit space, foreign policy. It's all the same sort of like who power dynamics right? Uh, that are driven by ego, which is so heartbreaking. Um, but nothing's been, nothing's like rocket science enough. I've never mm-hmm. been in an OR conducting brain surgery, nor would I ever raise my hand to do that. Nor <laughs> have I ever landed a, you know, 747 plane, like none of those things I've done, but like most of the stuff, like we can all figure out. And I mm-hmm. think women in general know that about mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. but they don't know that they have so much wind blowing their sales, right. in terms of their education, their freedom of movement for most women in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, their freedom to be able to ask really difficult questions about what their salaries look like and mm-hmm. how they may not be advancing. Um, there's so many more, um, there, there's a lot more capacity for us to succeed, whatever that looks like on a, on a one-to-one basis than we give ourselves credit for. So I always say women are holding the keys to the Aston Martin. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but like, it's just yeah. when I Google. It's, it's a fancy car. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a fancy expensive car. Um, 
the, the women are holding the keys to the Aston Martin, but they're asking whether or not they can drive. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is like, you have extraordinary power in the voting block as a consumer, mm-hmm. as a professional in HR departments. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, there was one listening circle that I did with all these top executives um, at Fortune 500 companies. And mm-hmm. we were talking about, you know, role power and roles and things like that. And, you know, one of them was talking about how they were um, adjusting uh, companies that every listener here mm-hmm. is familiar with said that they're adjusting their paternal leave policy. Mm-hmm. She felt like she was the only person who was showing up on behalf of like tens of thousands of employees mm-hmm. saying, wow, actually maybe it should look a little bit different. What is maternal? What is first caregiver? So mm-hmm. just quick bit of education. There was maternal right. and paternal leave, uh, maternity leave and paternity leave, which is obviously very, and that it falls in the heteronormative category. Right. Now we say is first caregiver, second caregiver leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this idea is she was like, I feel like I'm asking the hardest questions and fast forward a couple of hours, we were still talking about stuff. And at the end, which is the hypothesis of this book is that you have the, the front lines of the work that we have to do to get to the country and world that we want is right there in the room with you. Like pull mm-hmm. the front line of this work up to your tippy toes. And I said to her when she, when we were wrapping up, I said, I just want you to know that you're standing on a front line with like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people standing behind you. Mm-hmm. You are like leading this this huge battle for what I know feels like just like, well, should we give them eight weeks or 12 weeks for... Mm-hmm maternity leave. But like, that is your front line. It's the work that none of us want to do on ourselves with our companies with mm-hmm. our and our relationships with our, you know, brothers. Um, and so anyway, it's this idea of like reminding women <laughs> that um, they have the power, uh, they have the capacity. Um, now more so than ever, their voices are heard, even mm-hmm. though the people on the other side of the desk might be a little like curmudgeon about it. Like, Oh, we really have to talk about maternity leave. Yeah. You mm-hmm. do. In those moments when you're like, I'm a little bit scared. I wrap up the book by saying, let's all be a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit scared, but mm-hmm. I'm also a little bit brave for you. Right. So go do that for all of us. That's, that's amazing. Now I am curious because how are the women reacting when you share with them, like when they get the realization that they do have the power um, what do you, how are they reacting to that? Do they, are they sitting with it and saying, okay, yes, I'm going to leverage this power or are they sitting back, like you said, and saying, um, I'm a little too scared to move forward. Well, what chapter two, again, in raising our hands is this idea of cognitive acrobats, mm-hmm. uh, acrobatic performances where, mm. you know, you can say like, you're right, I'm going to go to HR and talk about maternity or paternity, or you're right, I'm going to, you know, raise that as a, you know, a, a gun owner, I'm still going to raise harder questions about gun control at the country club. Mm-hmm. And so you hear them say, you know what, I'm ready to do it. And, you know, they put their hands on their hands mm-hmm. and like, let's go. And then, and then they will start saying, ah, but you know what? That guy, Peter, won't actually listen to me. Or, ah, you know what? I don't really understand gun show loopholes or background check policy. Or, ah, I don't really know. Or I have to protect my salary, which is a very important mm-hmm. concept of um, intentional invisibility, mm-hmm. which I'll come to in, in a minute. But mm-hmm. this idea of like, I'm just going to continue to do backflips to get myself out of doing the work. Mm. that um, might remind us that we're not as smart as mm-hmm. 
we know as we believe we are, but we're scared the world's going to find out, right? Mm-hmm. Like this, mm-hmm. this BS the whole fraudulent right? feelings, yeah. imposter, 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 yeah. imposter mm-hmm. exactly. So I'm going to be discovered that I actually don't know what I'm talking about. And again, like I happen to believe that's the case for like a vast majority of humanity. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's just figuring it out. I've never been involved with a company where we don't say constantly, oh, let's just build a plane while, while flying it. Mm-hmm. Every single thing, every single initiative that I'm in, I mean, talk about the Women's March. Mm-hmm. We were like, we picked a cross street, we picked a date, we picked a logo. Mm-hmm. And, and like th- that plane actually just built itself, right? Like we mm-hmm. just made sure that there was outhouses. I, mm-hmm. I don't, <laughs> we actually did, but like it, this idea that like planes just build themselves. Sometimes if you just do the work and lean into it and say that you're going mm-hmm. um, right to try, um, but intentional invisibility is um, a symptom of women who are, doing the work of laboring the four to 10 times harder than their male counterparts, even if mm-hmm. their husbands are changing diapers. Mm-hmm. But this idea that, okay, I'm going to take the job that allows me to leave. If one of the kids gets sick, mm. I'm going to do, I'm going to do bare minimum and a little bit more. I'm not going to ruffle feathers. I'm not going to ask quite hard questions about, um, I'm not going to ask hard questions to my boss that might potentially suggest that I'm in doubt of their decisions. I'm going to do anything I can to be a strong, invisible player. So they Mm. can't see the company without me, but I'm also not getting in the way. And being that, and so intentionally making oneself invisible um, is a role that so many women play, particularly when, if they're breadwinners, if Mm -hmm. they're their households like mine, which rely on two, two incomes, this idea of like, what do I need to do to just be impressive enough that they can't quite justify a termination, um, that I can hold on to my job, but mm-hmm. I'm never really going to ask the hard questions. It's also a hypothesis I have when it comes to um, government employees where mm-hmm. they are, um, you know, the, the way that our government and our institutions are organized, mm-hmm. that very hard for um, a very junior team member who might have a brilliant idea mm-hmm. to get it up to the right ear. Mm-hmm. And, um, and because of the way, um, because of the incentives around, um, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank. What's it called? Uh, tenure. So mm-hmm. like when, 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 ten- when there's institutions that have tenure structured, right. It's, in my opinion, tenure is a silencing mechanism. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, of people who probably have really good ideas about how things can be run better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the way that our organizations are structured, it prevents creative, new blood, dumb mm-hmm. ideas, brilliant ideas from trickling up to places um, where, where they could be heard. But so many people in these large institutions mm-hmm. are sitting in like the stance of intent of intentionally being invisible. We're like, mm-hmm. they're putting out the academic paper exactly, you know, at the right cadence that they need to, to qualify for mm-hmm. tenure mm-hmm. so that no one really notices and they can just lock things in for decades when the truth is, is they're probably like, Oh wait, we have to turn this department on its head and they won't do it. Mm, so they don't want to rock the boat and they kind of just, um, take the burnt toast. <laughs> yeah, and, and oftentimes because one, as we enter a new economy, which none of us know what this is going to look like over the next 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. everyone 
put food on their table, myself being one of them. Mm-hmm. And so part of me that's like, just hold on to the dollar mm-hmm. versus being authentic and speaking truth. Mm-hmm. My fear, and I recognize I'm sitting in a very privileged p- place of um, to be able to say this, mm-hmm. is my fear is that if we don't run at that authenticity, if we don't speak up, if we don't raise our hand and say, hey, I think we're missing a huge opportunity here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in 15 years from now, when this is really just a dress rehearsal for a more deadly virus mm-hmm. or, um, or something more catastrophic, mm-hmm. um, World War III, um, like, like my big note, you asked the, your first question of, um, mm-hmm. that you went over was, um, what have you learned on your journey? And my mm-hmm. big note to your listeners is like, go now, speak now, tell mm-hmm. them idea right now um if you have an idea launch it there is uh, there is it's all gonna fly by so quickly and the one thing and this is like a little bit petty but i think there's something grounded in it Mm -hmm. i'm um 23 though according to my license and birth certificate it says i'm 38 (laughs) and i've heard consistently from older women that i've worked with um, Mm -hmm. research is they will say things like, my biggest regret is that I didn't do more. My mm-hmm. biggest regret is that I didn't chase my dreams harder. My biggest regret is da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my note has always been like, try, mm-hmm. swing, like stack the bases to the extent that you can and then swing as hard as you possibly can. And then if you miss and it doesn't work out, well, at least you know you tried. Right. Be- the biggest fear of mine is getting to a point in my life where I didn't actually leap mm. because um, it's just a missed opportunity. It's, and, and then if I don't show up as the phenomenal violinist or the phenomenal chef or the fun, a phenomenal um, trainer or first grade teacher or whatever it is, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm depriving the rest of my community and the country mm-hmm. from my potential talent. And that's also like, screw you, step up. I'm waiting for you to be the amazing first grade teacher that my kid needs, that my kid needs. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's a level of like, my big note is like, go now, don't wait, don't Mm -hmm. wait. And I will say from, you know, taking a big step back from what is happening in the world today, there is a, a tectonic power dynamic shift that is happening worldwide. Mm. And I don't know if it's in the form of the sovereign nations that Mm -hmm. it's been for the past hundred years, um, or if it's a women, the marginalized, are finally have a roar that can penetrate broken and impressive systems. Mm -hmm. Uh, When my uncle who voted for Trump said to me, <laughs> what do you think about reparations? I was like, what? Whoa. <laughs> right? Like, okay, let's do that. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's two options mm-hmm. from my research that we have right now, mm-hmm. uh, or that, that I've been doing with the book, because it's, I've been spending a lot of time with foreign policy experts around like what happens to countries pre civil mm-hmm. war, et cetera, et cetera. And when I was doing the research for the book, it was obviously pre corona. Mm-hmm. They were like, yes, the United States is ripe for a civil war. We've become so divided. We mm. uh, are like crouched in our beliefs in ways that protect our ego. Um, and then I just touched base with him six weeks into Corona mm-hmm. and he said, oh, no, no, no. 
this isn't about the United States potentially imploding. This is, we are on the brink of a potential World War III. Mm. And what's happened is um, when there is a, a, a movement of powers where, mm-hmm. where it's shifting, it's going from one power entity to another. To another. And I don't know what that other is, but in my head, I'd like to think that it's the marginalized populations. Right. Um, that there's two things that either happen. One, humanity buckles down, pulls their bootstrap up, takes the lessons from history that we've all learned, and let's try not to have to learn them over and over again, apply them instantly and take that huge leap forward, or... Or mm-hmm. what we've seen happen in modern history, where in two occasions, the country has imploded or the world has imploded into world wars. Mm. So what's happening with the power structures globally now is exactly what happened right before World War I and right before mm. World War II. The difference, ladies, is that the quantity of nuclear weapons that we have on the planet today mm-hmm drastically different than what it looked like in World War II. Yes. So we take the path of, okay, let's fall into violence. Let's fall into our wedge states, our divided mentality, mm-hmm. both nationally and globally. Um, it could be, it has the potential to be, ca- to be catastrophic. Catastrophic, yes. That's- and I get to the point of like, oh no, our species depends on you speaking up to your boss, of you speaking up mm. to your father-in-law, or you speaking up to your husband at, mm-hmm. you know, at the Carrera sink when you're, when you're brushing your teeth at night, like our species depends on this power of you being part of the front lines of this power shift that's happening. Um, I know I sure as hell need you to be there. Um, yes. We need to stand up and stand out. Absolutely. So I'm fascinated by, I know that your research also, you focused on these honest conversations with, you know, the, like you said, closed door conversations you were having. And you talk about some pretty, I would say, significant things around race, identity, privilege, and power. And, you know, you, something that you said at the very beginning of, you know, our discussion was that, you know, when you looked out in the Women's March, you and all the pink hats, you noticed that there was predominantly white women. Um, and then there's the idea of the whole white privilege and how women, you know, we need to make sure that we're, you know, embracing and bringing all of our sisters, our women of color, and, and leveraging that privilege to also, um, I would say, create awareness around some of those marginalized and those cha- the challenges that maybe some of the women of color are dealing with as well. What did you find in those conversations? Because I know that, you know, as a diversity and inclusion expert, when we bring up the topic of white privilege, there's a lot of sometimes defensiveness and people kind of, you know, immediately stepping back and maybe not wanting to engage in the conversation. Um, yeah, because if I admit, if I admit that there's somebody else of a different race who's had a steeper hill to climb, then that means I have to admit that mm. I've had it here. Mm. And in me, having it easier strips me of my um, uniqueness, mm. of my entitlement, of my invincibility, right? Mm. So this idea of like saying, well, I recognize that the world 
might not be as easy for other marginalized populations suggests that I then have to say, well, it might have been easier for me. And then it forces me to question whether or not the dollar that I earned was easier than the dollar that they earned. Mm. And then therefore, I actually might, again, not be as smart as I always knew I was. Wow, that is profoundly insightful. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, I thank you for the, that candid, like, and I do think that that's a lot of the core or the truth of, you know, that it's what they're thinking, but they don't want to say. Yeah. Um, um, and I will say when it, came, when it comes down to any um, race, gender, and class and disability, mm-hmm. whenever we have the conversation, I always say, um, as a white woman who has been in the social justice space my entire career, and I will be throughout the rest of my career, though I do mm-hmm. have from like, maybe I can just invent a shoe that will make him that's about money anymore. But uh-huh. uh, my husband was like, forget it. Let's just forget, forget you coming up with like the perfect beach chair, beach chair that doesn't rust. Just stay in the tree hugger space. Um, <laughs> so, so whenever I use language like that, I always say as a white woman, I am mm-hmm. first grade on these subjects and I might graduate to second at some point in my lifetime. I have so much I have to learn mm-hmm. um, much that I have to undo but first, before I can do that, I have to unpack it. Mm-hmm. And I'm unpacking it not just for my 23-year-old or 38-year-old life. I'm doing right. it on top of all of my ancestors, too. I'm doing it as I'm diving into textbooks, as I'm having conversations with clergy. Like, mm-hmm. it is just such a behemoth to navigate Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I always invite women into when we start talking about these, these subjects is like, chill out. You're not going to have the answers to most of these things. Right. So just sit and listen and be a student. And if you don't get it, then ask a clarifying question, preferably to Google first, right? This was one of the things <laughs> right. I did early, which was when someone said to me, um, uh, I said something along the lines of, this might be familiar to you. I don't see color. Mm-hmm. And I waited for like another year or two to ask a clarifying question to that one person when the truth is I should have just hung out with Google for 30 seconds. I've been like, wait, is it true that I do or I don't? Mm-hmm. And all those answers would have been there. Right. So, so one, you're always a student on anything related to race, gender, mm-hmm. class, ability, you're, whether you're white or not. Right. right. Absolutely. I will tell you right now, I've been put in my place so many times, even as a DNI expert for the past 20 years, right. you're always learning something new and you always realize that, mm, I just said, I myself just committed a microaggression here, <laughs> like, you know, and always having to keep myself in check. So all yeah. of us are students when, in learning that. And, you know, that minority tax of, well, you're Latina, you're a gay woman. What do you, what do you all think? And it's like, I can't speak for everybody else. I can only speak for myself because if I do speak for everybody else, I'm going to put my foot in my mouth. So that's right. So absolutely. So I think, um, so there is a level of like agitation. Mm -hmm. If I I say white privilege or white guilt, like God forbid I use the term white supremacy, Mm -hmm. like, or patriarchy. But if you, if you unpack how, um, this concept of white supremacy, which dates back thousands of years, but because mm-hmm. I didn't have enough time, I only got to 1452 um, <laughs> when Pope Nicholas V mm-hmm. um, wrote a papal bull, which mm-hmm. is the same thing as an executive order today, that essentially said, if you are white, Christian, and male, 
Mm. You have the freedom to go and take any land or people that aren't owned by other white Christian men. Mm. And so from 1452, that decree that was put on parchment paper, I have this very well visualized in my head. It was a scroll <laughs> of some sort. They nailed it to some right. Um, essentially said, white Christian men have the right to things before anybody else does. Mm. And that was like the foundation, part of the foundation for this idea of white being superior. Mm-hmm. And that's what Christopher Columbus brought over. That's what Dutch settlers brought over. That's mm-hmm. what most of our ancestors brought over if they came from the European continent. And so this idea that um, I don't consider myself a white supremacist mm-hmm. because that's like tiki torchy, tiki torch holding protesters right. in Virginia. But I recognize that I live in a system that mm-hmm. prioritizes whiteness as the supreme characteristic. Right. And so if you take, I found if you take language and be like, y'all, I'm not necessarily saying you're a racist. I can say with certainty that you have racial biases. Mm-hmm. I'm married to um, uh, Jeremy Goldberg and I have mm-hmm. two children with the last name Goldberg and my mm-hmm. father was Jewish and I consider myself Jewish mm-hmm. and I have anti-Semitic biases that I have to work on. Right. Mm-hmm. I can say I have biases against um, Hispanic people. I have biases mm-hmm. against blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls who are wearing glasses. I have biases against people who live in Los Angeles versus New York. Like the list just goes on. And so stepping into the place of humility um, as a student, be like, I actually don't know what I don't know, and just stay there forever. forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then when you mess up or you say something wrong, you say, I'm so sorry how can I do better? And then stop talking. Exactly. It's the two-part apology. I tell people all the time, it's the two-part apology. It is that simple. It is that simple. And, but because we've been raised to follow the blueprint, part of the blueprint is getting like, particularly for women is getting good grades. Um, You also have to get good grades on your debates with your boss, your debates with yourself, your conversations around gun control, and certainly mm-hmm. in today's world, any conversations you might have about, you know, privilege, mm-hmm. race, mass disability. Mm-hmm. So no one, so so many people are like, let's not talk about that because I sure as hell don't know how to come to that conversation. I don't have the language for it and I'm not going to perform perfection. So I'm just going to sit in silence. But what I found in my research is um, I took the white female demographic and then mm-hmm. I slipped, diced it into lots of stereotypical uh, groups. So it was mm-hmm. like super wealthy Jewish women above the age of 55 outside of Cleveland to, um, you know, uh, middle income, evangelical mm-hmm. young moms um, out in Connecticut, right? Mm-hmm. So it was just, I really like tried to get to the group think kind of concept. Right. And, um, and what I found is that they were all the conservative women, the, the women who fell on the, the conservative side of the mm-hmm. political spectrum. If race, gender, and class came up, which I sort of forced it to come up, mm-hmm. uh, if it didn't come up immediately, I would force it a couple hours into Merlot and Breeches, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> is they would say conservative women would be like, okay, I have a question I've never been able to ask anyone. I'm like, okay, great. Mm-hmm. Now's the time. Let's do this. And they would say, well, as a black African-American, 
But then if you go to the progressive mm-hmm. communities in like Brooklyn, and there's a lot of researchers who say progressive communities are extraordinarily dangerous for marginalized populations right. because they think that they, um, because they have friends representing mm-hmm. religious, socioeconomic, racial creed, um, but that because they live in um, liberal communities or communities where lots of different types of people live, that uh, they don't have any work to do on their biases, they mm-hmm. would never ask me. Like the right. women in Brooklyn would never ask me, is mm-hmm. it black or African-American? Right. And just for your listeners, just so you know, it's both. And again, revert back to the <laughs> student and ask clarifying questions, but it's both. Um, yeah. But this idea of like, well, I, I kind of sort of had that question too, mm-hmm. um, but progressive communities would never ask that and conservative question communities were a little bit more quick too. Yeah, that's fascinating. But yeah. I do want to make a point that, you know, the whole white privilege isn't just for white women or white people. I mean, we all have some sort of privilege for, you know, I will tell you right now, I, I absolutely, as a Latina woman, as a light-skinned Latina woman, have benefited from privilege, um, you know, and yes, I've had to work really hard and um, first-generational, you, know, um, you know, graduate school, first-generation, you know, corporate, and, but at the same time, I've had privilege, um, you know, uh, even above some of my family members, right? So I think people need to realize that, you know, we're not, you know, it's not something that we're beaten, just a bunch of white people <laughs> about, you know, you have white privilege. It's, it's you know, it, you have to get down to the fact that it maybe it's privilege. Maybe we need to get rid of the word white, but there are some, you know, privileges that we all benefit from for various reasons, right? And like you said, it's based on the systemic biases, but we see it in the Latino community. We see it in the black community where the lighter your skin, um, a lot of the times it is, you benefit more, right? And if you look at, you know, I mean, you can look at all, uh, look at the the Oscar winners, and you all of, you know, you see a lot of the light skinned individuals. So, I think it's, you know, one of those things where we need to remind people that, and be humble enough to say that, you know, and check yourselves and say, what privilege am I benefiting from? Um, yeah, because great. there's something, you know, there's sometimes is that where you know we're looking at other people or we're you know immediately visualizing the you know tall white male. But I, I, you know, I'll be the first to admit that I too have benefited from pr- privilege yeah, just of because of you know well, just and, because and of I the think- color of my skin. Right. And so there's, there's racial privilege, there's gender, but there's religious privilege, yes. there's nationality privilege. Like I'm not really today, and this is for another conversation, but um, I spent a lot of time abroad, um, my teenage years and in my twenties. And just by being an American on foreign mm-hmm. soil, I got treated differently, right? So like Absolutely. There's, there's so many different advantages that we all have. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the idea is to understand them, yes. compartmentalize them. In some right. cases, put them on a bookshelf. In some cases, use them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are this. There is discussion around like, do, you sh- do we shift the language from the word privilege to advantage? Right. And 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 I think that's probably a worthwhile exercise mm-hmm. to consider because so many, most people have levels of advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always say like, we all have, just have different hands of cards. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll do 
use them and play them and put them to work um, is mm-hmm. so key. What I would love to see today is more women stepping up in professional per personal civic capacities. Mm -hmm. And I want to add that it's not just the personal and professional lane anymore. We Mm -hmm. must add the civic lane to that. And civic lane. Absolutely. It's just about voting, calling your senator, marching, donating money. Yeah, do all those things. Mm -hmm. But civic lane is as much about what are you, what is your leave behind after Mm -hmm. your life? Like, what is it? What, how is your name? What is that legacy? Mm -hmm. What is that legacy? Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so we all have a duty to each other and ourselves. And, um, one of the, the, one of the things that's happening today is that voices, some voices are being heard differently by mm-hmm. people like me and people, um, in my community where they're pausing and listening, mm-hmm. in, uh, in ways that they haven't for generations. Mm. And I just wonder, and this is like my hypothesis and like, like hell, if this isn't what's going to happen. Sorry, I don't. I really have to bring my curse words back along. <laughs> no, that's fine. If we don't take advantage of the exact moment we're in, in the exact moment we're in, we are more connected to each other than we ever have mm. in history. Mm-hmm. We are now in a position to look back at all of the brilliant, amazing things that humanity has accomplished from medicine to understanding how our psyches work to understanding how important it is to be in community. And we're also able to look back at all the horrific things mm. that we have done to each other and say, never again, mm. and take lessons, like slap them on your gold chain and say, and now I'm going to move forward to equalize things. Now I'm going to move forward and work on behalf of not just myself, but on behalf of all of, on behalf of everybody. And that's not just how I vote, right? That's Mm -hmm. how I I to donate my money. That's how I decide. That's those are the consumer decisions I make, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not just, yeah, we talk about bottled water and Ziploc bags, but like, it's really about bottled water and Ziploc bags, ladies. Like, stop that. You have to, it's much easier and convenient to be like, oh, I'm better at putting the kid to sleep than my husband. So I'll just Mm. do it. Or it's much easier to just grab this bottle of water because I don't feel like going to find that reusable bottle of water and who knows where the lid is type thing. Like, Mm -hmm. let's just get some of these small things together. Or in those moments when you're like, I don't want to fight with my brother anymore about politics. It's a little bit like, okay, well then think about how to have the conversation differently Mm. because- his vote in November could be the decision of life or death for people he'll never know and will never know. Wow. Jenna, this has been the most fascinating conversation and inspirational conversation. And I will say my admiration for you and what you are doing to push this message forward is beyond describable. And please let us know how Beyond Barriers can partner with you and help you get this message across and really start pushing women to get engaged, that whole civic engagement and have a voice and stand up and stand out and just, you know, so that we can accelerate and level up together. Um, It's just, you know, it's what you're doing is phenomenal. And before, you know, we close out this podcast, I want to make sure that our listeners, our women know how they can get their book, how they can be, you know, in contact with you and how they can be of service, you know, to your mission as well. Sure. So please um, share with us, how do yeah. we stay in contact and how do we get your book? Well, 
You can you can else? buy Raising Our Hands. My name is Jenna Arnold. You can buy mm-hmm. Raising Our Hands um, at uh, your local bookstore. You all also know how you can buy Raising Our Hands very quickly quickly on that little app you have on your phone too. So it's <laughs> accessible in every place that you purchase items. Right. Um, um, you please follow me on Instagram. My handle is at it's Jenna. Um, my uh, website is JennaArnold.com, J-E-N-N-A-A-R-N-O-L-D.com. And I would really love to hear from people. I, I have a lot of learning that has that I personally have to do. And I've never been in conversation like this where someone hasn't been like, you might want to consider something, something. So if you have a note um, about anything that we discussed, please email me. Um, uh, because I would like to then scale that lesson uh, elsewhere. Um, and, you know, my last note for listeners is that front line of the work that you have to do to better humanity is in that room with you. It is calling yourself up to your full potential. It is uh, questioning the biases that you might have against yourself, against the rest of the world. Um, and just know in those moments of weakness, I am genuinely sitting here blowing wind in your sails. When you are scared, just know that I'm like standing behind you. And if you don't walk faster into that office or into that opportunity or onto that stage or into that difficult conversation, I will somehow come and push you through and <laughs> We're here, <laughs> We're not alone. This is scary, but let's all be brave together. Absolutely. Fantastic, Jenna. Thanks again for giving us the time and for giving us so much inspiration and the momentum to just go forward. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. There are thousands of podcasts out there, and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com, where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources referenced in this episode. And be sure to take the quiz on the website. Your score will tell you where you are, what helps you gain momentum, and what holds you back. You'll also get a free guide with cutting-edge career strategies. We'd also love to hear from you. Share your comments and topic suggestions on IamBeyondBarriers.com and we'll be sure to address them in future episodes. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and rate the podcast or just tell a friend about it. See you next episode.